Hello and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College. It's Wednesday, January 5th, and today I'm joined by Dr. Evan Ellis. Evan is our Latin American expert, and I've asked him to talk to us today about the seeming turn to the political left unfolding recently across Latin America. Evan, welcome. Thanks, John. It's good to be part of the program. Evan, let me begin by uh, asking you to give us the broad brush strokes of this shift to the left. Uh, There have been headlines recently about elections in uh, Honduras and Chile, but where else has this been unfolding exactly across the region? Great question, John. First of all, of course, uh, the left uh, has many different meanings, everything from a political uh, center left to a more populist or authoritarian left uh, to certain types of populism that uh, may not entirely be to the left. But in general, you can talk about uh, a confluence of different things. On the one hand, you have the consolidation of leftist populist or authoritarian regimes uh, such as Venezuela, as we saw with uh, the the recent uh, local elections, uh, Nicaragua with their uh, November, uh, you know, sham election, and and of course, uh, Cuba with the Diaz-Canal regime, Uh, you can see the uh, deepening of of certain leftist movements and their radicalization as they've gotten into problems. So Andres Manuel López Obrador in in Mexico, especially his foreign policy, you've seen the return of some uh, leftist regimes and their uh, deepening, such as the return of the MAS in Bolivia or the the return of the Peronists in in Argentina, and especially the more radical wing of former President uh, Christine uh, Fernandez. And of course, uh, you have um, some new uh, turns to the left. You have a basically um, the Leftist uh, school teacher Pedro Castillo in, in Peru, with um, the uh, hard left, uh, you know, Cuban agent uh, Vladimir Sharon behind him there in Peru. You have in Honduras the recent uh, election of Xiomara Castro with uh, her Libre movement, and of course uh, Chile, um, traditionally uh, well governed, but the, the election of, of a, a young, uh, relatively um, uh, populist. Uh, leader uh, Gabriel Boric. And then, of course, uh, you have uh, upcoming prospects. So, for example, in, in Colombia with those uh, that nation's uh, May presidential elections this year, and then in Brazil with the possibility of uh, left of center uh, Lula da Silva coming back in in October. Okay, Evan, you painted a picture for us of uh, very recent elections, let's say the second half or in, in 2021, but also this trend unfolding uh, perhaps for the last couple of years and perhaps continuing to unfold as we look to elections coming up in Brazil and Colombia. This kind of region-wide trend echoes what we saw about 15 years ago, I think, and many observers characterized the, the phenomenon as it unfolded then as the pink tide, this resurgence of leftist parties or center-left parties in Latin American elections. And it was back then something of a regional wave in which uh, we saw socioeconomic inequality across the region generating broad support for these left-of-center 
parties. Do you see what's unfolded recently and might continue to unfold in 2022 as another kind of budding pink tide? It's a great question, John. And certainly uh, there is uh, similarities with respect to uh, both that uh, shift to the left as part of a kind of pendulum with the region going back and forth between uh, left and, and right solutions. And there's certainly similarities in the variety of different leftist regimes we had then and now between some center left that accepted democracy versus more uh, populist left that rejected. But I see the current shift is much more extensive and in many ways much more dangerous strategically for the United States. First of all, uh, again, it involves a far greater number of countries um, and, and uh, some which are far more entrenched that build on actually those things that happened and were never fully reconciled back in, in that first wave that we call the pink tide. Um, second, of course, what's happening now is much more radicalized by the effects of COVID-19, uh, not only the health effects, but also the uh, fiscal effects and constraining government's ability to to. Uh, give uh, some of the uh, things that they need to their, to their people, as well as uh, some of the economic effects that have come with COVID-19 and some of the uh, mobilization and other political effects that have come with it. In addition, you have other strains. We can talk about the Venezuelan diaspora, uh, some uh, 7 million or more Venezuelans who have uh, really migrated throughout the region, not just Colombia, but the Caribbean, Guyana, Ecuador, Chile, and, and have had uh, impacts uh, both economically and, and in other domains like uh, criminality with um, with all of those countries. Uh, also, um, the development of regimes such as uh, the, the Chavistas in, in Venezuela, etc. What you now see is evidence that the lessons learned by that left has been used in many ways to weaponize uh, some uh, discontent and protest now. We saw it in Chile in October 2019. We saw it in Ecuador. We saw it most recently in, in Colombia with the radicalization of some of the protests uh, there this, this year. Um, and you know, again, uh, what we really are looking at now, thus, is virtually the entire region, with the exception of Ecuador, where Guillermo Lasso hangs on by a thread, with the exception of uh, the center-right, uh, which continues to hold on with uh, La Caixa Po in, in Ecuador, in Uruguay, um, and uh, to, to some degree, uh, other countries uh, such as uh, Paraguay. But um, with very, very few exceptions, the movement and thus the synergies between these leftist parties of various types um, are far beyond what we saw. Uh, again uh, 15 years ago you know i want to get evan to some of the strategic implications of this in just a minute but let me ask you to unpack a little bit further for us some of the uh, the reasons for this now you mentioned uh, the impact of covid uh, as well as uh, migrant waves or, or uh, migrants within migrant flows within latin america but if we look back 15 years ago we know that that socioeconomic inequality drove a lot of this rise in strength or power of left of center parties. Do you see that as explaining uh, some of this trend right now? And I, I think this is a probably important to get to because it could speak to po you know, policy recommendations eventually if, if Washington is looking to address uh, address this in some way, if we can unpack a bit the, the leading explanatory variables, maybe there's a, a, way, a way ahead here. So wh what's your sense of what what explains this trend right now? 
Great question, John. And certainly every story is different in the particulars, but uh, you do see common elements. Uh, so as you alluded to, uh, in Latin America in general, there has been an accumulated frustration with endemic corruption, with poverty, with inequality, and generally what you might consider relatively poor performance of democracies and free market economies in solving some of those problems that are really at the heart of, of the day-to-day -day concern of, of Latin Americans. Now, on top of that, again, you have um, other things that have made things worse. So again, um, with the COVID-19 crisis, you not only had the uh, augmenting of frustrations with government because, you know, mismanaged shutdowns, mismanaged, um, you know, purchases of, of ventilators and, and PPE and, and things like that um, really just compounded the frustration that citizens had over other issues. On top of that, again, it pushed many people who were just barely in the middle class back to, into the informal sector in much more desperate circumstances, augmenting their frustration. Uh, in addition to that, again, you had uh, fiscal constraints. Overall, in Latin America, debt as a percentage of GDP increased by about 10 percentage points in, in one year, which basically left many Latin American governments really very strapped in terms of being able to uh, you know, augment uh, police forces uh, to provide additional solutions with respect to social programs, infrastructure projects that could provide value added in meaningful jobs. So it really left a lot of Latin American governments uh, not only um, with the frustrations of their people, but fiscally constrained in, in how they could deal with those. But then on top of that, again, you have these other specialty effects. And so, um, again, the learning of the radical left of how to weaponize protests. And so you saw it again in Colombia, where, um, again, people came out into the streets and in Cali, um, in, in Bogota, in Medellin for legitimate reasons. But it was uh, certain radical elements that, that turned those violent, that created destabilization. Um, and, and that push the politics in certain direction. Another thing that we see now that we didn't have 15 years ago is the effect especially of Chinese money. Now, the Chinese are not in my judgment, trying to overthrow governments in the same way that the Soviet Union did with uh, you know, subversive uh, military support to the FMLN in El Salvador or the, the Sandinistas, the FSLN um, in Nicaragua. But the Chinese, in pursuing their own objectives, making sure that they get paid, but not really concerned with um, you know, the types of governance or the types of democracy, et cetera, are providing money that essentially serve as incubators of these new populist regimes. We, we saw it with Ecuador and Correa, with uh, Rafael Correa in Ecuador. We, we, we saw it with Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela. Um, but the result is that as these regimes um, try to change their constitutions, as they try to pack their own institutions and, and violate separation of power, as they try to move against the press and, and the private sector, um, in previous eras, you would get some pushback. You'd get capital flight. You'd get uh, institutional pushback that sometimes would swing the pendulum back to the right. But with Chinese money, um, those leaders are able to take these radicalizations much farther and thus lock themselves into power for, for the long haul. And in some ways, that uh, prevents the pendulum from swinging back in the way that perhaps it was able to do in many countries uh, uh, 15 years ago. Evan, speaking of the role of China in this unfolding trend across the region, let's zoom out now and talk about the sort of the strategic implications and how uh, this shift might affect uh, Washington's or America's interests in the region. What, what do you see? Give us the big picture first before we dive into sort of the security related elements. But what do you see as, as the main broad strategic implications of this of this shift? Mm -hmm. 
Well, John, first of all, the critical starting point is to recognize that even though we have long uh, focused our foreign policy engagement in Asia and the Middle East and in other places of importance to us, um, there is really, in terms of the numbers, no part of the world that is more directly contributing to our prosperity and security than Latin America. We are intimately tied by bonds of geography, by bonds of our investment in, in bilateral commerce, uh, by bonds of, of family and in immigration. When things are bad in the region, we feel it uh, in ways, whether we're talking about the migrant crisis or, or other things that are, are very direct and, and immediate and really become matters of domestic U.S. policy. Having said that, then, um, an understanding that what happens in the region matters. First of all, this turn to the left in general tends to make the region less cooperative overall to U.S. Um, encouragement or pressures on issues of importance to both Democrats and Republicans. And so uh, the human rights agenda and democracy and, and good governance and, and things like that, uh, the, the types of, of root causes that Vice President Harris uh, you know, wants to put forward. But at the same time, it also makes it less cooperative on matters like uh, transnational organized crime and, and drug cooperation and migration issues, where we actually saw we had the importance of cooperation in places like Central America uh, during the previous administration. So even as the region becomes less cooperative with those things, uh, also the things that directly affect the U.S. tend to become worse by uh, states that uh, their politics can uh, compound their fiscal crises, can compound capital flight. And so overall, um, what we tend to see is that, that these types of shifts tend to increase poverty, increase uh, corruption, increase or at least create economic and, and fiscal crises, um, impair good governance, which again, you know, has other effects in terms of the ability of transnational criminal organizations to, to operate there, etc. Uh, we've seen this occur in catastrophic proportions in, in Venezuela, um, and we're beginning to see it in other places. Number three, it affects our strategic equities because uh, these regimes, especially the populist left, tend to be um, far more willing and need to bring in other actors that we consider threatening. China, Russia, and, and Iran uh, most particularly, but also we can talk about Turkey and, and others. Um, now, it's not just the economic role of those actors, but uh, we find that the populist leftists in particular are far more willing to engage in ways that particularly worry the United States, whether it's acquiring weapons, not only Russian weapons, but also Chinese weapons, as, as the, the Venezuelans did, as the um, as the Ecuadorians did under, under Rafael Correa with, with the purchase of 709 military trucks, as, as the Bolivians did under Evo Morales, um, as well as other types of security apparatuses of, of concern, uh, surveillance architectures like Equ 911 in Ecuador under Correa, BOL 110 in, in Bolivia, et cetera, et cetera. And certainly we've seen how um, the Venezuelan regime has created an open door, uh, not only for um, the Chinese to come in in the oil sector, but the Russians to come in with their TU-160 backfire bombers and their air defense coordination and things like that. The Iranians coming in with their Mojahir drones, uh, with their activities um, in, in uh, various other sectors and possibly collaboration on, on weapons um, production. And then the other piece is, is frankly, that um, those ungoverned spaces also um, in 
conjunction with a lack of cooperation, um, create spaces for criminal actors that directly hurt the United States through, you know, drug flows leading to drug overdoses, um, migration, and, and other things. So, for example, in Mexico right now, we have the left-of-center government of Andres Manuel López Obrador, AMLO, who passed a new security law that um, significantly impaired the ability of DEA to operate in the country, uh, significantly constrained the way in which uh, the U.S. military could operate, especially in the domain of internal security, et cetera. So it makes the region more dangerous. It brings in other threat actors, and it makes it more difficult for us to cooperate to solve these collective problems that we have with the region. Evan, I think I need to draw you out on this one, on the, the point of uh, the populist left versus merely, or quote-unquote merely, the left of center governments, right? Um, and, and I want to go back maybe to something we were talking about earlier, the trends in the region. Is it your sense that, well, first of all, from what you've said, the populist left parties clearly pose a greater challenge, maybe even a greater threat to American interests, right? Is it your sense that it's the populist left that is really on the rise across the region? Or can we not say that yet? And it's, it's just, it's more broadly left of center. What's your sense? It's a combination of both because there's really an interaction effect between the populist left and, and others. And so traditionally what you find is that, again, a, a country like, like Venezuela, where you really had a roadmap with uh, Hugo Chavez and now Nicolas Maduro, where they brought in uh, you know the Cubans and Cuban counterintelligence, but they also really architected a way to leverage this uh, to, um, to, to push left to solutions in, in other places and then create crises and use those crises to radicalize the government. And so for example, um, you, you look at a situation like in, in Argentina, where little by little, the more kind of radical uh, segment represented by Cristina Fernandez, La Campora, is trying to put her people in, in key ministerial positions, is, is trying to you know pack some of the government judiciary organs, is trying to push things in a way that Alberto Fernandez, the centrist leftist, maybe doesn't want to go. Uh, we're facing a, a similar type of debate right now in with uh, Xiomara Castro. Um, there are some real bad actors within the Libre movement in, in Honduras. And so the question is, okay, right now, uh, Xiomara Castro, who shares certain objectives with the Biden administration on things like anti-corruption um, and, and possibly uh, restoring an anti-corruption commission, has um, also, there's the temptation to um, you know ally either in foreign policy or in certain types of collaboration, again, whether it's uh, recognizing the Chinese or uh, you know collaborating with other like-minded leftists, you know, such as the Venezuelans, et cetera. We saw this with the FMLN before also, where, um, again, even though um, in the FMLN, Salvador Sanchez Serrano's uh, government was not necessarily uh, anti-democratic, but it wove a collection of, of money and, and corruption uh, through, for example, the ALBA organization that really opened the door. And so even in a place, for example, right now, like Chile, where you have, again, good governance, um, there's nothing to say that uh, Gabriel Boric is, is anti-democratic. But the issue is that uh, his key coalition partner is the Chilean Communist Party, you know, aka of Salvador Allende fame. Um, he is going to be creating some really significant financial crises. And so in the context of those crises, you know, who is he pushed to ally with? Will he move towards the center? Um, or will, um, you know, will the um, the communists and coalition and others push him in a, in a, in a different direction? And so, um, the um, one doesn't want to 
to say that all left of center governments are anti-democratic. But because of the nature of the populist left engagement, there is a, a certain risk, um, not only in foreign policy, but other types of collaboration that that open door moves us in a direction. It becomes hard for us for, to cooperate. Um, and it also um, opens up a bit of a contagion effect that, that these governments are hold down this path, both because of increasing frictions with, with the United States and, and others, and because of the way that the certain key actors. So for example, Xiomara Castro's government in Honduras, um, uh, some of the people that are involved, one of her her deputies, uh, for example, was one of the organizers of the, the migrant caravans that created so much uh, problems for us um, back uh, just, just a couple of months ago. And so it's playing out in a lot of different ways, but um, you know, it's neither correct to say that um, you know it's it's just the left, everything's okay, but neither is it to say that any left of government is immediately a danger. And so there's a there's a balance between we try to work with these governments and hope for the best, but we have to recognize the inherent risks of who's in the coalition, um, what types of, of agendas are behind the scenes. Evan, that's great. I appreciate you explaining that, that nuance there uh, and the, the, what sound like the risks of a slippery slope in, in some cases. Uh, l- let me get back to the implications of this unfolding trend um, that we're discussing. And now let, let's home in specifically on the national security-related implications, specifically for the Department of Defense and, um, and our national security enterprise in the U.S. What are uh, some of the leading implications of this, of this shift? You mentioned it becomes more difficult for these governments to uh, perhaps work with the U.S. or maybe they're less likely or less willing to work with us. Will we see implications of that in, in national security terms? Absolutely. And we've already seen them, and I think we'll continue to see more. So again, um, you know, uh, in, in Mexico, the AMLO government is not necessarily purely anti-democratic. However, for a number of different reasons, uh, they did pass that national security law that makes it uh, very difficult, takes away the immunity of DEA operatives, uh, constrains the ability of, of us to do certain types of, of military cooperation. And even though we have a new uh, security cooperation framework called called the, um, called the um, Bicentennial, framework, uh, it's not clear um, what meaningful things that will actually uh, bring about. Uh, you have uh, some on-the-table questions. So, for example, in, in El Salvador, you have an increasingly defiant government of Nayib Bukele, who maybe wouldn't be considered to, to the left, but as a populist, um, and of course, so we have one of our very important forward operating locations, uh, Comalapa, there. Um, even a bigger question is uh, Joint Task Force Bravo uh, in uh, the Sotocano Air Base in, in Honduras. Um, so, um, some within the Libre movement have, have talked about shutting down Sotucano, which is important not only for Honduras, but projection uh, throughout the region. Um, the same thing we saw with Rafael Correa back in 2007 when we got kicked out of, of the critical uh, Pacific-facing uh, base in, in Manta. So there's all those types of access issues. Now, in some places like Argentina, despite what happened in the previous government where we were effectively shut out of their Ministry of Defense um, and, and shut out of, of counter-narcotics uh, cooperation, um, Thus far, we still have not been shut out as extensively, but it does raise issues of, of concern. So 
literally is just you go from country to country. Um, in every case, um, it's slightly different in terms of how much latitude our, our SCO teams have. But um, in each case, the, the politics create sometimes just sensitivities. Sometimes they create legal imperatives. Sometimes you have personnel that are put in, um, you know, with an anti-U.S. bent in terms of the, the persons who are responsible for liaison with, with the U.S. with the explicit purpose of, of creating obstacles in the relationships, etc. Um, in some cases, there's a desire to decrease cooperation, whether it's with, you know, financial investigation units, FIUs, or or the DEA or, or, or others um, in order to free up opportunities, you know, for, for corruption. But then the bottom line is, is in all of those cases, it makes it more difficult to cooperate um, on transnational crime issues, on, on corruption issues and, and things like that. And again, you have also some, you know, direct issues such as coordinating on, on migratory flows, um, coordinating on, you know, on, on counter narcotics, uh, you know, operations that, that directly impact, um, you know, the, the ability to monitor uh, Again, um, you know, drugs coming in across the Mexican border or drugs coming in through the southeast uh, approaches uh, in, in, in the Caribbean. Um, so at the, at the end of the day, um, it, the decreased ability of us to coordinate intimately with those with whom we are geographically proximate um, really constrains our ability to to have what we call a defense in depth in national security in this in this hemisphere. And, you know, the final part is, is we already previously alluded to it as well, is the question of um, not only um, decreased working with us and, and increased problems, but also um, a more open door to threat actors. Uh, Russia, again, um, Iran. And so, you know, already in Venezuela, you can see, for example, um, again, um, you know, Wagner Group operatives. Uh, you can see, again, um, you know, nuclear capable bombers, you know, coming in. Now, um, while China has thus far avoided uh, those types of provocative, you know, basing agreements and, and things like that, uh, you have to understand that where you have military to military cooperation, that in the context of, for example, a, a war that could break out o over Taiwan or in um, elsewhere in Southeast Asia, that the question then becomes that even without a basing agreement, um, if certain partners agreed to it, how quickly would the Chinese be able to um, deploy assets in the region, whether it was, uh, you know, just uh, special operations or intelligence operatives or creating diversionary crises, or maybe even in the context of a broader war in Asia, um, the ability actually to take advantage of a partner, maybe in Nicaragua or, or maybe Venezuela or maybe Argentina, to say, okay, um, you know, this time around, we're going to bet against the United States, um, and we're going to allow uh, maybe uh, Chinese to do port calls or or to to resupply an air base, and then all of a sudden, Southcom, which is the the AOR for you know counter drugs and and things like that that are long time considered less sexy, suddenly becomes critical in terms of real risks to the U.S. homeland in that context, and also frankly risks to the tip fit flows um, and to the sustainment flows that Paycom rely on to actually conduct that war. So there are all kinds of issues that are a lot bigger than than just, you know, more, more, more drugs and, and more annoyance in the region. Kevin, I really appreciate you painting that, uh, that picture for us and explaining this. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm grateful for you taking the time today. I think it'd be interesting if we re-engage on this, perhaps in a few months uh, after the elections in Colombia and Brazil. I think it'd be interesting to get your your take on how this, uh, this is continuing to unfold. But uh, for now, Professor Evan Ellis, uh, research professor at SSI, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your expertise and insights. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure.
You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.